maniac's deed. Three persons murdered as they lay asleep, dwelling then set afire to hide traces of his dreadful work. When you think of Burrville, Rhode Island, you might think of the Conjuring House. And if you think of the Conjuring House, you might wonder, why is it so haunted? Or why do so many people claim it's haunted? My job as a paranormal researcher is to find out why something might be haunted. And in my opinion, I think that unexpected deaths tend to lead to hauntings. Now, it seems that someone else thought this as well, because there is a book called The Black Book of Burraville that lists all unusual deaths beginning in 1790. Now, to quote the lists of these deaths, dropped dead, heart attack, there were five, suicide by poison, 12, deaths by scalding, 12, Suicide by cutting their throats, 12. Suicidal drownings, 16. Murders, 19. Burned to death, 22. Suicide by shooting, 24. Suicide by hanging, 38. Found dead, 55. Accidentally drowned, 82. Accidentally killed, 86. Now this episode is highlighting... One of the murders that I found, one of several axe murders, that when I found it, I thought this would be the perfect episode for the Axe Murder Diaries. This is the Axe Murder Diaries, a true crime and true hauntings podcast. Listener discretion is advised. This is the murder of the Reynolds family. Now, before we begin, I will clarify a few things. So, when it says things like Oakland or Harrisville, that is all within Burraville, Rhode Island. And as we know, the newspapers will misprint things such as names. Um, But according to the gravestones, um, these were the names of the victims. Edwin Merrick Reynolds, age 53, Abby Mowry Reynolds, age 50, and their adopted daughter, Sevilla Louise Reynolds, age 14. The following is from the Kennebec Journal, Augusta, Maine, Thursday, April 15th, 1897. Murder, arson, Oakland, Rhode Island, stirred to very depths by triple murder. Edward Reynolds, wife and daughter, killed and burned in-house. Supposed to be deed of Martin Mowry, suddenly gone insane. April 14th. A horrible tragedy was enacted early this morning at the home of Edward Reynolds on the Alicia Mathewson Place near Sweet Hill in the town of Oakland. Mrs. Reynolds and probably her husband and daughter were brutally murdered and the house was set on fire, presumably to cover the crime. Martin Mowry, the hired man, employed by the Reynolds, who seems to be crazy, was found hiding in a barn near Oakland and was at once placed under arrest. 
The neighbors were aroused early this morning by the fire, and they had no sooner effected an entrance to the house than evidence which led to the supposition that the fire was the result of arson after murder was disclosed. Mrs. Reynolds' body, mutilated and blood-stained, was taken from her bed by those who were first to enter the house. They found copious bloodstains and what is believed to be traces of kerosene about the bedroom. They were prevented from making a thorough search of the premises by the heat and smoke. It was quite late this morning when the ruins became cool enough to enable those who had been drawn to the scene to continue the search. At daylight, a body was seen lying near the center of the ruins, and as soon as possible this was removed. Although burned so badly as to be beyond recognition, the appearance indicated that it was that of Sylvina Reynolds, the 20-year-old daughter of Mr. Reynolds. A short time later, Reynolds' body was also recovered. The identification was a general one, as the body had been frightfully burned. When the neighbors who had been aroused by the fire went to the Reynolds' house this morning, they found that the flames were confined to one part of the house. The house was securely fastened, the doors being bolted and locked and every window closed tightly so that they were compelled to burst open the door to gain admission. From what they saw, the house had been saturated with kerosene so thoroughly that the flames spread with marvelous rapidity. The rescuers attempted to reach that part of the house where the Reynolds family slept, but were driven back so quickly that they had only time to take Mrs. Reynolds' body out of the doors before this section of the house was in a blaze. From what could be judged by the appearance of her body, a brutal murder had been committed. The head had been crushed in, evidently by an axe, and the upper part of the body was horribly mutilated. The two men who brought out the body say the bed which she occupied was covered with blood. An attempt was made to locate Reynolds's body, but it did not appear to be in the room. It is believed that he had been alarmed by a noise and left the room and had met his death in another part of the house. It is stated that the position of the body in the ruins would appear to bear out this theory. Martin Mowry, the man who worked for Reynolds, slept in another part of the house, and the villagers hurried to his room to alarm him. The room was empty, and from the hasty examination that could be made, it was evident that the bed had not been disturbed. Mowry's trunk and a box belonging to him were open, and his clothing was strewn about the floor. It was thought his body might also be in the ruins, but a careful search was nevertheless made of the neighboring villages. No trace of him could be found at first, and his disappearances was regarded as one of the most mysterious features of the case. All the officers in this section of the state were summoned and with the aid of the neighbors, the country about Oakland was thoroughly scoured. At last, he was found hiding in a barn near Harrisville and was at once placed under arrest. He was taken to Harrisville, where he will be held pending the medical examination. Mowry is a bachelor, about 65 years of age. He was always well-liked in this section of the state and has borne a good reputation. Although of late, he has been very peculiar. From evidence discovered today, it is learned that he has been paying considerable uncalled for attention to Miss Servilla Reynolds, the murdered girl and adopted daughter of Edward Reynolds during the past few weeks, 
and it is believed that her failure to respond to his advances has had something to do with his present condition, for there is no doubt but that Maori is a madman. From the position of the bodies, it is believed that Reynolds was called to his daughter's room by some unusual sound, and that when he reacted, the side of her bed he received his death blow. At that time, Miss Reynolds was probably killed. How? The autopsy alone will disclose. The murderer then went to Mrs. Reynolds' room and after stabbing her twice in the face, battered her head in with some blunt instrument. Now forgive me because this newspaper is getting blurrier and blurrier. I believe it says a 15-gallon of can. I believe they're talking about the kerosene was in the Reynolds home. This was taken and the oil mixed with shavings was scattered over the house. When Maori left the house, he went to the woods where he shot himself in the head. The bullet only stunned him, however, and he did not repeat the attempt, then going to Buffum's farm. The revolver with the two chambers empty was found in his possession and the empty oil can found in Maori's apartment. It is now in the hand of the police. Maori was willing to talk after the arrest, but from his appearance and manner of expression, it could not be denied, but that he was insane. He said that... <sighs> I cannot read this. Wearing long black rubber coats and black... Oh, he said robbers were wearing long black rubber coats and black masks had come to his room while he was in bed and that three of them remained with him while the other two went into the Reynolds... Bayment? I'm assuming they're trying to say... Bedroom. He heard the screams and cries for help of the three people who were killed, and when the men returned, they took $200 from him, and forcing him from the home, they took him to the woods where they shot him. The story was told in such a rambling fashion that it was with difficulty that any sense could be made of the statement. Reynolds and his wife were each 50 years of age. Servilla was their adopted daughter. She was the daughter of Frederick N. Maori, Mrs. Reynolds' brother. And when he died five years ago, she was adopted. Reynolds was not a wealthy man and had little money. So that robbery could not have been the object of the crime. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, You'll notice that a lot of these murders that happen to children are after these men sexually harass these children and get denied. Am I the only one noticing this theme? And then these horrible people making up these insane stories. Um... 
It's a sad theme. The following is an excerpt from The Times. April 15th, 1897. Family slain and burned. An awful triple murder committed in Oakland, Rhode Island. It was learned later that Martin Mowry had been seen on his way to Harrisville. About 9 a.m., the old fellow wandered onto the premises of a young farmer named Bolster, nearly three miles from the old Matthewson homestead. His clothing was sopping wet, and there was a bullet hole in his right ear. In a rambling way, he told a story of having been awakened at 11 o'clock in the night by five masked and rubber-coated robbers who entered his room and, placing a pistol close to his head, fired a bullet directly into his right ear. While it did not seem to seriously affect him, it was regarded as a very dangerous wound, and the surgeon decided that it was not advisable to attempt its removal at this time. Five masked and rubber-coated robbers. Say that five times fast. A remarkable feature of the injury inflicted is that while the inner ear is filled with grains of powder, there are no stains or burns on the outer ear. It is the general impression that the old man is insane and that he killed the family, set fire to the house and barn, and then endeavored to commit suicide. He was locked up and held to await developments. Maori was arraigned this afternoon on the charge of murder. He pleaded not guilty. His counsel said that he was undoubtedly insane. Now, I just want to read you this header of this article that, of course, was published by the Fall River Daily Evening News, Wednesday, April 14th, 1897. Now, this article says much of, much of the same thing as other articles, but just this header is, um, I'll just read it. Horrible crime in the Rhode Island village of Oakland near Pascawag. The family of Edward Reynolds murdered and the house set on fire. Timely arrival of neighbors and rescue of Mrs. Reynolds' body revealed the crime. Premises were saturated with kerosene and two bodies burned to a crisp. Why would they phrase it like that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine a headline saying that now? following is from the Boston Globe, Boston, Massachusetts, Wednesday, April 14th, 1897. Now, this article is especially dramatic. Um, you'll see what I mean. And I hope that um, the part about Mrs. Reynolds is not true. I hope that she did not suffer. Three slain, then murderer sets fire to desolate home. Fearful tragedy in quiet town of Oakland, Rhode Island. Bloodstained body of Mrs. Edward Reynolds, rescued from flames by neighbors. Those of husband and daughter taken from smoking ruins. Martin Mowry, who occupied bachelor quarters in same house, found in loft of neighboring barn, chattering and laughing like a maniac, and placed under arrest. One of the most blood-curdling tragedies of modern times were enacted last night, soon after midnight, in the quiet little town of Oakland, a few miles from here. About three o'clock, the house of Edward Reynolds was discovered to be on fire, and neighbors rushed to the scene. No one was astir. They broke down the door, and at their feet, blood-stained and breathing her last, lay Mrs. Reynolds. 
She was lifted tenderly and borne to a place of safety, but soon expired. The rapid spread of the flames effectually prevented a search for Mr. Reynolds and the adopted daughter, Servilla, but their charred bodies were afterward taken from the smoking ruins. Later, Martin Mowry, an eccentric man who occupied the other part of the Reynolds house, was found in a neighboring barn, chattering and laughing like a madman and placed under arrest. The following is from the Boston Globe, Boston, Massachusetts, Saturday, May 15th, 1897. Maniac's Deed Three persons murdered as they lay asleep. Dwelling then set a fire to hide traces of his dreadful work. Martin L. Mowry of Burville, Rhode Island, held for trial charged with causing the deaths of Edwin M., Abby J., and Sevilla Reynolds, with whom he lived. Eccentric old bachelor loved little girl and sought revenge because farm had not been left to him. Quote, Abby Jane Reynolds, his wife, was taken from the burning building barely breathing, with the left side of her head crushed in. That she was attacked most ferociously with some sharp three-cornered instrument is apparent, and that she was given seven distinct wounds is known, but not enough is left of the bodies of the father and daughter to show what had been their condition before the house was fired. A few red-stained articles taken from the rooms the father and daughter occupied indicate, however, that both had been foully dealt with before the flames caught their clothing. The authorities assumed that both were killed before the crime of arson was committed. Martin L. Mowry, 58 years old, who occupied a portion of the farmhouse, is under arrest, charged with the murder of the three persons. He was arraigned tonight and entered a plea of not guilty and a hearing was fixed for April 21st. He carries a 22 caliber bullet in his right ear and tells a story of an attack by five men who tried to get his money and then took him two miles through the woods and shot him. He denies all complicity in the murder and has reiterated the story of the five robbers all day. His counsel, Edward F. Lovejoy of Pascawag, talked with Maori before arraignment and says his client is insane. He is crazy if ever a man was, said Mr. Lovejoy tonight, and the defense will undoubtedly be along that line. I shall endeavor to try the case at the preliminary hearing in the district court. Maori regards the whole affair with a sort of maniacal humor, and in the court proceedings, he laughed at every opportunity. He did not appear to realize his position, although he sticks to his original story pretty well. He was very anxious that the doctor should extract the ball from his ear intact. As he said, he wanted the bullet to show people that he was innocent. An inquest will be held in a day or two on all three cases, although there is no medical evidence of any value except in regard to the death of the woman. The woman's name was Mrs. Abby Jane Mowry Reynolds. She was 50 years old. She's not just the woman. In deciding that Martin Mowry was the murderer, which is practically admitted by his counsel, the crime is ascribed to the excited eccentricities of a diseased mind. In the first place, Mowry always believed that this farm should have been given to him by Alicia Mathewson, the former owner, at his death. 
that he has brooded over the injustice of allowing the property to go to the heirs instead of to him, according to the expressed wish of Mr. Mathewson, is well known, and this is believed to have aggravated his mental ailment until he turned against the innocent occupants of the property, which for years he has looked upon as his. In addition to this, many think that he conceived an uncontrollable affection for the young daughter, although the disappointment over the loss of the farm is believed to have been the primary cause of the murder and subsequent destruction of the house. The old man has been considered mentally unsound for some time, although it was not supposed that his insanity would ever take a dangerous turn. He had always been regarded as a big, good-natured, but irresponsible, quote, lumper. I want to add that Mental illness does not make you do bad things. You do bad things when you're a bad person. The murder occurred on the old Alicia Mathewson farm in a three or four house settlement called Sweets Hill in the town of Burville, Rhode Island. Alicia Mathewson was an old farmer and in his life a rather prominent democratic politician in the country about here. Martin Mowry went to live with him when a boy and has been an occupant of the farmhouse for 41 years. Anton Allen and Mr. Plum were attending to a sick horse last night. About 3.45 a.m., they discovered that the neighboring farmhouse, occupied by the Reynolds family and by Martin L. Mowry, and the adjoining barn were ablaze. With E.S. Burlingame, George Olney, Tom Sweet, and several other neighbors, they went to the assistance of the occupants. The town has no fire apparatus, and the men were able to make no attempt to extinguish the fire, but at once endeavored to get into the house. All of the doors were locked, and by the time the front door was broken down, the smoke rendered it impossible for anyone to enter the hall. Rushing to the rear of the house, the men found Mrs. Reynolds in bed in her room on the first floor and they managed to get her out. She was barely breathing when laid on the grass, and although she was given stimulants, it was only a matter of a moment or two when she was dead. Mr. Olney and Mr. Burlingame climbed through the window on the lower floor of the front of the house, looking for Mr. Reynolds. He was not in his room, but they hastily tore the pillow and clothing off his bed and brought it outside. Both the pillow and the spread were stained with blood. While these two men were searching the stifling interior of the house for some trace of Mr. Reynolds, Mr. Plum and Mr. Allen had raised a ladder to the upper window where the young girl's room was located. One man jumped inside but could not remain. The smoke was so dense that he could not reach the bed where he feared the daughter was lying, but he caught up a rocking chair and threw it out of the window. Upon the chair was ample evidence of the crime preceding the ignition of the premises for the back was covered with large, red discolorations. The flames were only just taking possession of the west end of the building where Martin Mowry had his rooms, and Mr. Burlingame, Mr. Plum, and Mr. Olney made their way into the room on the first floor, which had been the old man's chamber. When the front door was broken open, the old man's shepherd dog sprang out, and it was supposed that he was still in the house. So if he did this... Not only did he murder an entire family, 
He also left his dog to burn alive. The men hunted all over the west side of the house, but could find no trace of Mr. Mowry. His bed was carefully made and did not appear to have been occupied last night, but the oil-soaked spread was then burning slowly, as if after ignition, the draft had not been strong enough to fan the flame into a substantial blaze. The bed clothing was removed, and several garments belonging to Mr. Mowry were taken from the wall, but no trace of the man himself was found. A strong, pungent odor of kerosene came from the smoke, and this inflammable liquid had evidently been used freely. The smell of the kerosene was perceptible from every side of the house, and it seemed as if it had been applied in a number of places to ensure a prompt destruction of the buildings. When the men rescued the dying woman, her room was filled with the effluvia, and a small bag which was taken from the table in the chamber had been saturated with oil. The bedding evidently had also had an application, and in the daughter's room, kerosene could be traced. So I had to look it up. They said effluvia, but when I looked that up, it said effluvium which is an unpleasant or harmful odor, secretion, or discharge. So essentially, they're just describing how the room was filled with the smell of oil. The chair taken from the room smelled strongly of the oil, and the bedding removed from Maori's chamber was wet and emitted an unmistakable odor of the same character. The flames climbed up the outside walls of the house, over which a liberal coating of oil had been spread, so determined had the incendiary been that nothing should remain, that the barn was not neglected. Kerosene had been used liberally to start the fire there also, and a large store of hay aided the fire in making short work of this outbuilding. In the yard, the men found an empty five-gallon kerosene can, and it is estimated that all of five gallons was used on the interior and exterior of the house and barn to make destruction doubly sure. The house and barn were burned to the foundations, but it was an hour and a half after the fire was discovered before the house fell in and the ruins could be searched for the missing man and girl. The skull, pelvis, part of the vertebrae, and the trunk, all that remained of the body of the girl were found in the ashes in the south end of the cellar under the location of her room. Therefore, it is presumed that her body must have been left in her room. Underneath a pile of debris, a portion of the trunk and the left arm of the body of Mr. Reynolds were found, and as they were not so near the surface as the remains of the daughter, it is thought that Mr. Reynolds was on the first floor when he was overcome by the fire. He is believed to have been burned to death, as there is every indication that he was struck in his room, and although able to move after receiving the blows, could not get out of the burning structure. From the position in which his remains were found in the embers, he could not have been in his room when the floors fell in. All this time, a search was being made for Martin L. Mallory, the only other occupant of the house unaccounted for. When the dog was released, the animal struck off across lots and into the woods, following the trail of his master. And the missing man himself turned up at Washington Bolster's house, three miles away from the Matthewson house, about 7.30 a.m. 
he had knocked at Mr. Bolster's door, very much excited, with the blood trickling down his cheek from the wound in his right ear. Very incoherently, he told the story of having been assaulted by robbers and shot over in the woods, and as his clothing was wet, his story was believed at the time. Mowry was detained at the Bolster farm until the nearest neighbor, Leander Buffum, one of the town constables, could be reached, and he brought Mowry to Harrisville. By this time, the fact that Mrs. Reynolds had been murdered before the house had been fired was known, and Mowry was promptly incarcerated in the small lockup at the Harrisville station. He was searched, but no revolver was found on his person. In fact, nothing but a one-cent piece. Medical examiner Wilcox, assisted by Dr. Granger and Dr. Capwell, held autopsies on the body of Mrs. Reynolds and the few remnants of the other two members of the Reynolds household. Only in the case of Mrs. Reynolds could an examination determine the character of the assault which was committed upon all three. There were evidences of crushing blows on the head, and physicians found signs of seven distinct penetrations of the skull. The medical examiner could not determine the character of the instrument with which the wounds were inflicted, but he stated that they must have been made with a three-cornered weapon used with great force. An old bayonet was found in the ruins, but Dr. Wilcox said the blows could have been struck with this only in case it had been attached to a gun barrel. He did not believe that, with the bayonet held in the assailant's hand, enough force could be concentrated without additional leverage to produce such aggravated fractures of the skull. The wounds appeared, he said, very much the same as he would expect to see resulting from blows being struck by a sharp, heavy instrument, like a pickaxe. In addition to the wounds on the head, a large contused wound was found over the right eye, while the left arm and shoulder were also superficially bruised. Sevilla, the first victim. Relative to the bodies of Edwin and Sevilla Reynolds, the medical examiner was able to report little of any value. The traces of how they were murdered were thoroughly effaced by the fire, and the circumstances are largely to be conjectured. Which one of the three persons was first attacked is also in doubt. It is believed, however, simply from the fact that Maori was known to have, in his simple, lumbering way, shown a clumsy sort of childish affection for her, that Sevilla Reynolds was the first victim. Maori occupied the two lower rooms and an attic at the west end of the house, where he lived alone. The east end was tenanted by the Reynolds family, although there was a door on the lower floor connecting the two apartments. The girl slept in a rear room on the second floor, while Mrs. Reynolds' chamber was beneath the daughter's, and Mr. Reynolds occupied a front room, also in the first story. I'm sorry, but a childish affection? She was a child. He was an adult. That's, that's gross. That his primary object was the destruction of the buildings is the most consistent view, as the Reynolds family, according to his own statement, have treated him very kindly and have added to the comforts of his bachelor home in many ways. It is figured that Maori made all preparations for burning the buildings before he entered the Reynolds part of the house. He had a key which, 
fitted the door between the two parts of the house, but none to the exterior doors used by Mr. Reynolds. He is supposed to have gone into the Reynolds part and made his way to the room occupied by the girl. Can we call these women by their names? What happened, considering the irresponsibility of the man under arrest, is almost beyond conjecture. So meager are the facts upon which to base it. I do enjoy how they say almost beyond conjecture because they do very much um, use a lot of conjecture here. That she was either badly wounded or beaten to death, just as her mother is known to have been, is most probable. Although a strange circumstance connected with her death is the blood-stained rocker taken from the room during the fire. Owing to this, the only evidence connected with the assault on the daughter, many believe that she was not killed while in bed, but that she arose and struggled with the man. The impression is that the girl was struck the disabling wound if she was not killed outright during the encounter in her room, and in the struggle the chair and the floor were stained with blood. Upon no other reasonable hypothesis could the stains on the chair be accounted for. Both Mr. and Mrs. Reynolds were attacked while in bed. Mr. Reynolds is supposed to have been the second victim. He was evidently struck in a crushing blow on the head while lying, entirely unconscious of the presence of the murderer. That it was a forcible blow is shown by the heavily dyed pillow, with a large blotch just where the head must have rested. That Mr. Reynolds was not instantly killed is obvious from the fact that the body was found in a position indicating that he had left his room and gone toward the west end of the house until overcome by the weakening influences of the wound and the kerosene-permeated smoke. If he was the first to be attacked by the murderer, it might be reasonable to suppose that he heard the struggle going on in his daughter's room overhead and was intent upon assisting her when he left his own room. Mrs. Reynolds was an invalid, and considering the severe wounds that she received, the fact that she was alive when she was taken from the burning house makes people inclined to the theory that her wounds could not have been received very many minutes before the neighbors found her. In making his way from the house, Maori cut across the fields and into the woods, crossing Rocket Brook and the Glendale Turnpike, and bringing up at Washington Bolster's home. By a strange coincidence, in his flight he went toward the old sawmill on the brook, which for years was his father's property, and his course seemed to be in the direction of his old home, where he was born and lived up to his 18th year. Story Told by Maori I went to bed about 9 o'clock last night, but I got up about 10, as I was not feeling well. I went to bed again soon and fell asleep. The next thing I remember was five men standing over my bed, all I remember is that they were dressed in rubber coats and wore pointed shoes and black hats. One man had a revolver, and he asked me for my money. I told him that I didn't have any, but he said that I had and must give it to him. I told him again that I hadn't any money, and then he said he would shoot me if I did not give it up. They made me get up and dress while they hunted about the room for money. While he was dressing, he said the men found some $200 in gold and $100 in silver in an old brick oven and carried it away with them. 
and talking with Deputy Sheriff Oliver Inman, who took charge of him. He told his route, claiming at the time that he was not shot until he reached the brook. Mowry spent the day in a small, dark cell in the lockup, and his wound, he said, was paining him. But the doctors were too busy with the autopsy to attend to him. Poor baby. Deputy Sheriff and Town Sergeant Oliver A. Inman, who is considered the most gentlemanly deputy sheriff in the state, and an old friend of the simple-hearted Mowry. Simple-hearted? was the complainant, and the warrant charged Martin L. Mowry with the malicious murder of Edwin M., Abby J., and Sevilla Reynolds. The court sat in the town clerk's office, which was crowded with curious people. Mowry did not appear to mind it, for as the deputy sheriff led him to his place, he looked the spectators over and said, I am going to tell the truth. He was very anxious to talk, but his counsel restrained him. While waiting for the justice to appear, Mowry laughingly remarked that this was the first time he had ever been in court and appeared to see humor in the circumstance. He kept telling his counsel about his running across the fields in the morning, repeating the story of his flight over and over. When Justice Steer read the complaint and asked him to plead, Mowry supplemented the statement of his counsel that he pleaded not guilty by saying firmly, I am not guilty, sir. After he had been held for a week for examination, he said to the doctors, I want you to take that bullet out, so you can show these people that I am an innocent man. If my friends will only stand by me, I will show them that I am not guilty. He was taken back to the lockup, and the ball was removed by Dr. Granger and Dr. Capwell. I personally would have been okay if they kept it in. A few things about his movements Mr. Mowry does not tell. Yesterday, Harry Brown, a Pascawag baker, delivered some bread to Mowry, and he says the man said, I want to pay you for this now. I want to settle in this world, not in the next. To E.S. Burlingame, he said, a day or two ago, I am going out west pretty soon. You know I want to pick up some old cores and antique furniture, and I think I can find some out there. It has been Mr. Mowry's custom to visit at George Plum's next door and play Whist, which I looked up is a card game that was played in the 18th and 19th century. Last evening, about 7 o'clock, George Olney came over and asked if he was intending to join in the game that evening. No, I cannot go tonight, he said. I have got to go down to Blackmere's, and besides, I have some business to attend to. He did not go to Blackmere's, and as far as is known, he did not leave his house last evening. Three weeks ago, he said to Thomas Sweet, a neighbor, and said he had lost the key to his outside door. The key to my outside door just fits the door leading into Mr. Reynolds' house, and I want you to file me a new key. These remarks were taken to show that Mowry contemplated setting fire to the buildings, if nothing more. No instrument which could have made the wounds on Mrs. Reynolds' skull has been found. An old flintlock musket, a relic of the colonial times, was the only piece of arms found in the ruins. The twenty-two caliber revolver which Mowry owned, and with which he shot himself, will be searched for today near the brook which Mowry says he crossed. Sheriff Inman says that, from what Mowry told him, he believes that he shot himself at the stream and fell into the water, 
as when he was arrested he was wet from head to foot. The motive for the murder is held by the sheriff, who has known Mowry for years. To lie in the disappointment over the fact that he did not receive the farm on Alicia Mathewson's death. Mr. Mathewson died about a year ago, leaving no will. Although everybody in this village supposed that the farm was to go to Martin. Mowry said to the reporter this afternoon, That property is mine, and Mr. Mathewson meant it for me. I've lived on that farm for 41 years, and I never got any pay. Mr. Mathewson always told me that he would recompensate me by leaving me the farm. He talked it over with me before he died and told me what wood lots to cut and what to leave until a year or two later. When he went south six or seven years ago after his uncle, James Webb, he wrote to me and told me to take care of his will. I found it under some books on the table and put it in the safe he had in the house. The will was sealed and I did not look at it but Mr. Mathewson told me he left the farm to me. When he came home, he was going to add a codicil, and he went to Providence one day to do it. I never asked him much about the will, because he was stubborn and he did not like to be questioned. When Mr. Mathewson died, no will was found, so his heirs got the farm, although he always intended I should have it. Well, it sounds like your grievance is with Mr. Mathewson, not this poor, innocent family that you slaughtered. There has been a controversy over the Mathewson estate ever since the old man's death. A few days before he died, he gave the keys of the safe to Martin, and acting upon the advice of Faye Bartlett, the key was deposited in the Pascawag National Bank. After Mr. Mathewson's death, eight of the heirs came together at the old farmhouse and witnessed the opening of the safe by Martin Mowry. After the examination of the paper, seven bank books were found and also the records of a number of mortgage notes and bonds, but no will. An administrator was appointed, who died, and now Liberty Jenks of Cumberland Hill is in charge of the property. There are about 40 heirs, and besides the farm property which Martin Mowry thought he ought to have, there is $14,000 worth of personal property. Martin has been living at the farmhouse through sufferance of the heirs. Martin has been living at the farmhouse through sufferance of the heirs and has been given the rooms in the West End. He is not believed to have much money, although he is able to pay for all of his supplies. It appears to be another case where everyone knew the man was insane, but no one ever believed his mania would make him a dangerous character. So it sounds like they were nice enough to let him live there and he repaid them by murdering them and burning down their house. The following is from the Fall River Daily Herald, April 15th, 1897. The bells in the tower of the little Catholic church situated in the village of Harrisville were tolling the Angelus last night when Martin L. Mowry was led into the town clerk's office on the main street to be arraigned on a warrant charging him with the triple murder of the Reynolds family who were regarded as the most kindly and considerate of his acquaintances up to the time that this terrible tragedy was discovered, and of whom he still speaks most affectionately for the many kind offices they performed for him in his lonely bachelor life since they had taken up their abode under the same roof with him one year ago. The aged prisoner, after the bluff old sheriff Oliver Inman, had led him back 
of the council table and dropped his hold of the prisoner's monocled wrist, gazed wonderingly and searchingly into the faces of the crowd, and yet inquisitive, that crowded against the railing that separates the council table from the rest of the room, and said, I'm here to tell the truth, and settled down into his chair with the with a face as placid as that of a grandparent who has just uttered a few words of advice to a child. What a weird way to describe that. Then, there was a wait of nearly 20 minutes, during which the constant murmuring of the crowd, packed against the rail, together with some few of the comments which reached his ears, caused a drawn look to spread over the old man's countenance. This murmur and hum of voices in the crowd foremost in which stood the murdered girl's own father, aged, in looks, ten years since the day before, and gazing intently at the prisoner, seemed to worry Maori, and as the minutes passed, his fingers twitched as he nervously clutched the arms of his chair. And yet there was no semblance of vengefulness or any wrath apparent on even one of the mass of faces, despite the fact that the triple crime he was charged with was most heinous, and there probably was hardly a person within the walls of the town clerk's office who did not believe that it was his hand which wrought the work of slaughter and destruction. The warrant charged that Martin L. Mowry, on the 14th day of April, 1897, did kill, slay, and murder Edwin M. Reynolds, Abby Jane Reynolds, and Sevilla Reynolds, all of said Burraville. Some who learned of the form in which the warrant was drawn were surprised that it charged him with the murder of three persons when it was expected that the charge in which he would be arraigned would be on one alleging the single murder of Mrs. Reynolds, whose body was found with its ghastly evidences of brutal and deadly assault before the flame reached her to destroy evidences of crime. Judge Steer Martin L. Mowry, you are charged with the murder of Edwin Reynolds, Abby J. Reynolds, and Sevilla Reynolds. Do you plead guilty or not guilty? By the time the warrant was read, the prisoner appeared to have settled into a weary, woe-begone state. His eyes didn't rove among the crowd, and the nervous twitching of his fingers was more noticeable. Just previous, he had leaned towards his counsel and repeatedly expressed a desire to tell his story, saying, I want to tell the truth and show my innocence. Attorney Lovejoy had repeatedly cautioned him to be quiet, and after the judge finished his official inquiry of the prisoner, Mr. Lovejoy said, The defendant pleads not guilty, Your Honor. Then Mowry, in firm tones, half rising from his chair and leaning forward towards the judge, uttered the words, Not guilty. Mr. Lovejoy stated to the court that he had been summoned into the case late, and desired further time to look into the matter. Sheriff Inman, the complainant, was agreeable, and at Mr. Lovejoy's request, the hearing was continued one week for trial before Judge Harrison, Wednesday, April 21st, at 11 a.m. Judge Steer said later that the charge was murder, and the law allowed him to fix no bail. There was a few moments' silence, the crowd waiting for further developments, and the room was slowly cleared of the crowd. The prisoner whose straight black hair looked as if fingers had been nervously and repeatedly run through it, was taken into the back room, and Dr. Granger inquired if he wouldn't like to have the bullet removed from his head. 
Yes, but I don't want to have the doctors affect my head or cause my death, as I want to show my friends that I am innocent. The old man, whose bloodstained shirt had been changed for a clean black and white one at the store, was then led back to the hot and ill-smelling lockup back of the railroad station. Martin Mowry was taken from Harrisville this morning and lodged in the Cranston prison, where he will be held, pending his trial next Wednesday. The effort that was made last night to remove the bullet from Mowry's head was unsuccessful as it was in such a position that none of the physicians dared to operate upon it without better hospital facilities. Upon his arrival at the prison, an examination of the wound was made, that is Luna, and an operation will be performed at the earliest possible moment. I love how it's just like, we will get to the bullet in your head at the earliest convenience. The following is from the Boston Globe, Boston, Massachusetts, Monday, April 26, 1897. Bayonets thrust. Wound in head which killed Mrs. Reynolds thus caused. Weapon and gun which held. It produced at inquest. Martin Mowry's underclothing bears bloodstains which he had tried to wash out in cold water, setting them ineffaceably. Ineffaceable. Unable to be erased or forgotten. Oxford Dictionary. Squire Oliver Inman was the star witness in the Reynolds family murder inquest at Harrisville today. Today, Sheriff Inman, who was the chief prosecutor for the town of Burrowville, produced the clothing worn by aged Martin Mowry on the night of the murders. The underclothing was also introduced as evidence, and it was certainly a most startling and sensational incident when a large oval blood spot on the left knee of the drawers was pointed out to Coroner Granger. You see, someone tried to wash this blood out with cold water, and it is set hard into the woolen, remarked Mr. Inman, as he displayed the gruesome relics. The watch worn by Mowry on the night of the murder was also brought into court. Nathan Whaling, a farmer, 72 years old, was the first witness of the day. He was duly sworn and testified. I was acquainted with Alicia Mathewson for several years and did considerable business with him. I had entrusted papers of value to Mathewson, including my will, which he had for about 20 years. When I went to Mathewson for the will, I did not hold any lengthy conversation. I asked him for my will, and he said, Mine will be lonesome now. I asked him what he meant by that, and he said, Mine lay right close to yours. This was in the autumn of 1894, about one year before Mathewson died. Apparently his name was pronounced Elisha, and I've been saying Alicia this entire time, and now I feel bad. Uh, amend. The following is from the Boston Globe, April 28, 1897. A most important witness was Mrs. Cora R. Mowry, wife of Frederick Mowry, Sevilla's own mother. She was sworn by the coroner and testified substantially as follows. Sevilla Reynolds was a Maori and was adopted by the Reynolds family when she was two years old at the request of my husband's mother. I do not know whether or not this was done regularly through the probate court. I never appeared at the probate court to sign any papers relative to the matter. I have seen Sevilla often of late for I worked for the Reynolds family about every Friday for a year past. Every Friday I was accustomed to see Martin Maori. He was in Mrs. Reynolds' part of the house sitting down and talking with Mrs. Reynolds. 
He often talked with Sevilla about going to school and about unimportant things. He seemed to be very fond of Sevilla. I think more fond than a man of his age ought to be. I have seen things that convinced me of this. On one occasion, Sevilla and I went after checkerberries, and Martin followed. Sevilla turning said to him, We don't care for any of your company. You may go back. Martin kept right along and said he was going anyway. While we were picking berries, he kept plaguing her, pulling her hair, and putting his arms around her. He hugged and embraced her in a way that startled me. He kissed her, too. I told him to stop and said, Martin, let her alone. But he continued as before. Sevilla said to me, Mother, let's go home. And we did so. On other occasions, when she would go out into the yard or into the woodhouse, he would follow her. This I have seen. I often went on other days than Fridays to see Mrs. Reynolds as often as twice a week. So that's disgusting, obviously. So what's not obvious is um, this case is a little confusing because in some sources, like on Find a Grave, it says that Sevilla was adopted um, because her mom died. It says, daughter of Mrs. Reynolds' deceased sister. But here it says that the mother is alive. And another source, it said that the father was dead, but then the father was a witness. So I'm honestly confused. Um, and I'm sorry if this is confusing. I'll do my best to figure out what, what the heck the family ties are. But apparently the parents are alive. Asked if Sevilla ever complained to her of Mowry's treatment, witness answered, All that she ever said to me was that she wished that he would keep away from her. Witness said that as near as she could recall, she was at the Reynolds house two weeks before the tragedy occurred. I never heard that Sevilla talked of going away to school. She once said that if she could go away from the Reynolds home, it would be because Martin Mowry followed her about and persistently talked of his love for her. Martin appeared at times to be all carried away with Sevilla. He became confidential with her at times and told her about her parents and how she came to be a member of the Reynolds family. Medical examiner Robert Wilcox of Pascawag, age 42, physician, followed Mrs. Mowry as a witness. He testified to being called to the Alicia Mathewson place on the morning of April 14th by Antonio Allen at 435, who said he had been sent by Squire Inman to summon him. That afternoon at 1.30, in the presence of E. V. Granger, M.D., and R. P. Capwell, M.D., of Slatersville, I held an autopsy and found that the cause of death of Mrs. Abby J. Reynolds was a crushing blow in the head, which caused a compound, comminuted fracture of the skull, and the verdict in the case of the bodies, supposed to be Sevilla and Edwin Reynolds, they being so nearly destroyed by fire, that death was caused by some circumstances undeterminable. The witness was handed a heavy sledgehammer found near the burned house, and in answer to questions by Coroner Granger, he said the weapon used on the bodies might have been the hammer in evidence. It was undoubtedly a blunt instrument used in the assault. Other wounds were made by a bayonet thrust. Martin knew apparently all the time what was going on in the Reynolds part of the house, and Sevilla could not stir about the place but what he went after her, dogging her steps. If she even went out to hang clothing on the line or to the well, Martin was after her and telling her what a nice girl she was. Whenever the opportunity presented itself, he would take hold of her hand and caress her. 
Sevilla never said that Maori had done a great many favors for her. She apparently wanted no favors from him, but she was pressed with some and accepted them to get rid of Martin. Sevilla was 15 at the time she was murdered. She was large for her age. Uh, interesting thing to leave that at, but yeah. The following is from the Boston Globe, May 15th, 1897. Martin L. Mowry, The Cause. Result of inquest into the deaths of Edward Reynolds, his wife, and Sevilla at Burraville. Quote, The coroner has reviewed the testimony carefully and found that Edward Reynolds, his wife, and the adopted daughter, Sevilla, came to their deaths at the hands of Martin Mowry, and that an axe, sledgehammer, and bayonet Reused in the commission of the murders. Thomas Sweet, who figured as an everyday witness in the hearings in Harrisville, became a very familiar figure thereabouts, has been at the county courthouse here much of late, familiarizing himself with the law department. He is an important witness, not only because he found Mrs. Reynolds dying and burning to death with bayonet wounds in her head, but also because he is a principal heir of Senator Mathewson. His knowledge of the Mathewson will, which Mowry had in his custody for a time, is also considered valuable. The following is from the Boston Globe, July 15th, 1899. To prison for life. Martin Mowry sentenced at Providence today. Aged defendant appeared in court as cool as if nothing happened him protested that he was innocent and that prejudice convicted him. Mowry has been awaiting for a year past the action of the appellate court on his petition for a new trial. Two weeks ago, the decision was handed down and the case came back to the common pleas today for sentence. Mowry has been a splendid prisoner since his incarceration at Cranston. Today, he was brought in by Sheriff Vial as calm and cool as if nothing had ever happened him. He stood up at the bar, attended by his lawyers. Attorney General Tanner represented the state and asked for sentence. The case was briefly reviewed by the prosecuting officer and remarks were made by the defendant's counsel. Mowry was asked by Judge Wilbur what he had to say. The old man, who has been considered insane by some, faced the audience in court and said, I am an innocent man, entirely innocent. You will remember that Gorton was hanged in the state, and he was innocent too. Judge Wilbur here interrupted with the remark that was ancient history and said, We want to hear what you have to say about yourself. I'm innocent, Your Honor, and only prejudice convicted me. Life sentence was then pronounced, and Mowry went back to Cranston. The following is from the Atlanta Journal, February 9th, 1900. Civilly dead cannot sue. Court holds that a convicted murderer has no legal existence. Martin Mowry made the discovery today that he is dead. Not literally, but civilly. He is serving a life sentence for the murder of Edwin M. Reynolds, his wife and daughter, whom he beat nearly to death. Then he soaked the house in kerosene and set it ablaze. The family lived on the Alicia Mathewson place in Burraville, and Mowry remained there after Alicia Mathewson died. He brought suit against the estate for $5,000 for services. Judge Douglas decided that Maori cannot sue because, in the eyes of the law, he doesn't exist. It, an administrator, is appointed 
If an administrator is appointed, he can sue in the name of Maori's estate. The following is from the Boston Globe, November 28, 1900. Victory for a murderer. Convict Martin L. Maori awarded a verdict of $4,500. Martin L. Maori, now serving a life sentence in the state prison for the murder of Mrs. Abby J. Reynolds in Burrowville, Rhode Island, was awarded a verdict of $4,500 by a jury in the Common Peas Division of the Supreme Court today in a suit against the administrator of the estate of Alicia Mathewson. Maori sued through an administrator, having been declared civilly, civilly dead, although he was permitted to appear in court and testify. He claimed $5,000 damages for services rendered Mathewson during the last 20 years of his life, and also for $1,000 which had been put in Mathewson's care and which had been given Maori by a man named Webb, who Maori had nursed during an illness. So I looked up civilly dead, um, and it means dead in the eyes of the law. Interesting. Um, so Martin is civilly dead, but yet they gave him $4,500 worth of damages. I do think that if you murdered the family who was living in the home, uh, was living in the Elisha estate, and then you also burned down that estate, I don't understand why you would be owed any money. Uh, that, that, I have no words. Personally, I would have been fine if they just left him as civilly dead and left it at that. I mean, the cost of the house itself must have been more than $4,500, even back then. I mean, come on. Um... But yeah, I was unable to find when he actually died. He seems to have disappeared into obscurity after 1900. But uh, I suppose we can at least take comfort in the fact that he is definitely dead now. This episode was created for the memory of Edwin Merrick Reynolds, June 21st, 1843 to April 14, 1897, age 53, and his wife, Abby Jane Mowry Reynolds, July 25, 1846, to April 14, 1897, age 50, and their adopted daughter, Sevilla Louise Reynolds, November 4, 1882, to April 14, 1897, age 14. In closing, thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry if the old newspapers were a little confusing, um, but I hope it wasn't too confusing. I hope you enjoyed this as much as one can enjoy a Victorian murder. But yeah, and I do appreciate your continued patience with um, getting these episodes out. Now that October is over, I feel like we're getting into our uh, podcast season. Um, once it starts to snow, I'm basically trapped in Vermont on the other side of the mountain. So it's going to be less about me 
going out and doing things for, um, you know, for, for fun, for leisure, or, you know, about posting on TikTok, Instagram, that kind of thing. Um, and it's gonna be more of my hibernating state. And I'm actually really looking forward to this. Um, today is like the first day of daylight savings time, which is sad. And I'm gonna go try to walk outside before it gets dark. But I am very much looking forward to spending more time on the podcast because um, I really do love it, as time-consuming as it can be. So thank you so much for continuing to be here. If there's any questions you have in this episode or at all, free, feel free to comment on the Instagram post at the Axminer Diaries. And stay spooky, guys. Stay safe. And see you next time.